Hey, welcome to the JavaScript Jabber podcast. I'm Chris Ferdinetti filling in for Chuck today, and I'm joined by co-panelist Chris Beekler. Hey, it's Chris from CloseBrace.com, coming to you from sunny Rhode Island. And our special guest today is Adam Leventhal. Adam, can you introduce yourself? Sure thing. Adam Leventhal. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Transposit in not-so-sunny San Francisco. Awesome. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Claybo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET focused or Microsoft focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net. .NET is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. Adam, do you mind telling us a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, I'd be stoked to. So let me just tell you very briefly, you know, what some of the conditions that, that made us found Transposit. So we, you know, my, my co-founder, Tina Wong, and I are both developers, you know, coming from opposite sides of, of these problems. And is realized that as developers, we spend a huge amount of time doing things like authenticating, paginating through data, reading documentation on all these APIs, APIs that make us really powerful as developers, but feel like we waste a lot of time on stuff that is not specifically the problems we're trying to solve. So what we set out to do with Transposit is build a way for developers to work with lots of different APIs, like take authentication off the table, pagination off the table, all, all the stuff that's overhead, and get developers, folks like us, just focused on the problems we're trying to solve. So rather than pouring through documentation, be able to iterate interactively with different APIs, call, you know, invoke our data, our authenticated secure data, get back uh, interesting results, and iterate from there. What we built is this serverless platform. It's free to use for developers. And we give you a combination of SQL or JavaScript to start screwing around with your APIs, build and deploy interesting backends. Okay, so this is really appealing to me in particular because I'm uh, people who listen to this show regularly will know I'm a huge fan of the Jamstack and static websites, but the, to the point that I will actually build kind of full-fledged apps on top of them. But when you do that, you need to sometimes interact with API data. And one of the things I've always struggled with is how to do that in a secure way. So I'm not exposing things like you know secrets and keys and whatnot to anybody who has access to the front-end code base. So I always end up falling back to what I know, which is kind of a headless WordPress instance. And I use their um, kind of their nice REST API platform to build some custom endpoints and things like that. But it's kind of a pain because it means I then need to maintain a SQL database and a WordPress instance. And the whole reason I got into Jamstack was to get away from that sort of thing. So is that something that Transposit might be able to help me with or replace? And if so, could you talk a little bit about how that might work? Because I'm yeah, really yeah. excited about this. This sounds perfect for me. Exactly. And we, we see a lot of that. We see folks, you know, if people are building internal tools, for example, they have access to build lots of great, like thick clients, you can know, de deploy it using easy infrastructure like S3 or Netlify or stuff like that. But then it, it's a huge you know, pain in the neck when they start wanting to pour real data and, and talk to real APIs and they start doing, and, and forgive me for categorizing this, but kind of hacky things like taking, taking things like WordPress or things that weren't really purpose-built for it and just using it. To, to solve this problems around authentication, maintaining secrets, that kind of stuff. And, and you've probably seen, Chris, tons of folks putting stuff they shouldn't into that front-end code. You know, it's just hanging out there in the browser, some secret key, waiting for someone to discover it. Or that's the place where they, they realize 
okay, I've built this neat tool. I can use it, but I can't share it with anyone else because it's, it's fundamentally insecure. One of the things I see people do a lot that I think they think is secure is like the obfuscated key. So they'll pick a random variable like X, uh, you know, var X equals whatever their key is. And then they'll reference that later when they need to pass that information along. Really not realizing that you can open up developer tools, look at XHR requests and just see all that information exposed right there for you. You know what I mean? So yeah, I see stuff like this a lot. Exactly. It's like whether it's, uh, you know, hiding it in some secretish variable or, you know, having, having like a base 64 encoded or, in, you know, simple ro- encryption or whatever, all, all of those things are obviously janky ways of hiding it and, and you're still exposed. So yeah, w- one of the ways that we, that we see Transposite used a bunch is as that full backend. So let's say you're building some front-end application and you want to talk to a couple of different AWS services, you want to integrate with something like GitHub or Circle CI. All of those things have different types of credentials and, and authentication requirements. And doing them through the browser is sometimes possible, but, but often really challenging, especially when you're trying to store you know, client secrets and, and things that you don't want third parties to see. So with Transposit, we let you add each of those things. You know, you're, you're talking to like an AWS service, to, to GitHub, to CircleCI, add those as different data connectors. You as a developer can then authenticate with them through our portal start experimenting with those APIs, publish the things you do as just deployed endpoints that, that kick off the services that you want. I'll talk about more of that in a second. And then once you've built something interesting, you can instruct your end users to go through that same authentication workflow. And then our services, you know, our, our, our servers walk your users through that OAuth workflow, store those credentials securely, deal with stuff like refresh. So, so you don't have to. So you, you don't have, it's, it's kind of that, sitting between your thick front end and all those APIs you want to interact with. Nice. That sounds awesome. Just to dive into a little bit more. So, you know, one of the ways that we can operate is just as that kind of proxy sitting between you and some, some API to authenticate on behalf of your users. Another thing we've done is added this kind of generic JavaScript and SQL interface to all these different types of data connectors. So rather than spending all the time you know, learning how each of the, the schema for each of them, how of them each of them paginates or filters data or whatever, we give this kind of cool SQL interface across all of it. So you can just start experimenting interactively where, you know, SQL is this great language in particular for doing these relational queries where you're saying, get some data out of GitHub and relate it to some information, say, out of uh, Amazon's ECR service. So you can you can start you know, intermixing data from these different sources. So then the data that your client code gets is exactly that data payload you had in mind. That's very cool. So with the various APIs that you can talk to, do you guys have an, a list of APIs or is it pretty much open to whatever you're looking to, to work with? So we have, yeah, we have a list of APIs. Right now we, uh, we have to build data connectors for all the different APIs that we support. For the most part, it's pretty straightforward. So we're, we're using a technology called Open API or Swagger. I don't know if you guys have heard of that, but it's Open API is this emerging technology that folks are using to describe their APIs. It's like JSON or YAML, and it's just like, here's the path, here's the method, here are the parameters. People are using it a lot for stuff like documentation or code generation, but there are a couple of folks, and it put us in this category, who are using it for SDK generation, where... And in particular, we've also added to OpenAPI some extensions around things like pagination. 
So imbuing open API with a, a more descriptive grammar around what these APIs are capable of. So letting the machines do the work of figuring out how to invoke these APIs rather than us humans reading the documentation that was generated by machines. So we're using open API. We, we have built on, on the order of hundreds of connectors, but we've also had members of the community build their own connectors. Uh, we had a, a DevRel from Algorithmia get really fired up and build a, a connector. And especially if you've already, if you're already using Swagger Open API, building a connector is, you know, a couple of minutes. Nice. I've actually worked with Swagger uh, in the past briefly, mainly from the reading it standpoint. Yeah, and it, it involved a lot of going to the page and looking at the API endpoints and looking at the data payload and then writing my code to make sure that it was providing what was expected and expecting what was going to be returned. So it sounds like this cuts out a lot of that research step, essentially. Exactly. And so, you know, you know, the developer experience in Transposit is, you know, you log in, if you add some data connector, you, you know, you want to go talk to some AWS service, then you get a much simpler JavaScript interface for it. Or again, you can use SQL if, if that feels like a, a more natural way to interact with these different kinds of APIs. And it's all of that is powered, all of that is generated from these open API descriptions or, or Swagger descriptions. Can you uh, combine the two, work with both JavaScript and SQL at the same time, or is it sort of a pick one and, and move in that direction? No, so you, you can definitely combine the two. And kind of rolling back to the, to the genesis of Transposit, we knew we wanted some domain-specific language here. We knew that um, you know, as people are talking to these different APIs, we wanted a way for developers to express their intent. Like, what am I trying to do? And then let the software figure out the most efficient way to do that. And so... You know, we, we stole a page from the relational database because this was exactly why SQL was invented you know, back in the early 70s and productized in the early 80s by Oracle, was this idea of, of taking, uh, you know, unlocking this, this priesthood of developers. It used to be in the early 70s, you, know, you had to be an amazing developer, know all kinds of crazy stuff to be able to build applications. SQL let you say, well, here's what I'm trying to do, and now let this really smart software do the work of figuring out where the disk reads and writes should, should go to and how data is stored and all that stuff. So we've stolen that page and given you this, this interface where, again, you can express your intent and then leave it up to us to do normal stuff like retries or kind of long tail elimination or, or, or those kinds of services. And SQL we chose because there are some like 8 million developers who claim to know SQL. We also wanted to pair that with a, a declarative or procedural programming language and we chose JavaScript because that's probably the, you know, the, the most popular, most broadly known language, both on server and front end. So between SQL and JavaScript, those are probably the number one and number two most popular languages, according to the Stack Overflow recent polls. So if you're building an application, you can have some part of your logic that's kind of more declarative, has, has more conditionals. That's going to make a lot more sense in JavaScript. But if you have stuff where you're doing joins across disparate data sets, that's been a really natural fit for SQL and allow us to do some pretty cool magic on the back end to make those queries efficient. Very cool. Forgive me, I'm trying to make this not sound like just like a paid advertisement for trans. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, it's and no, that's not. I'm just I'm trying to think of some questions to get at because I could I could talk talk about how awesome the product is because it is. But um, I, I'd I'd love to dig a little bit into the like. Maybe a little bit of like the how a little bit more, or um, I was I was just going to say I'm 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 interested in some of the nitty gritty of of how people can use it, uh, particularly you know 
get up and running. It looks like you guys use Slack apps as an example pretty frequently. Yeah. To, to Chris, up your point, like I, you know, I realize I'm, I, I'm really not trying to like just buy my stuff here. So uh, yeah, and that's not. I was not in any way trying to imply that that was your intent. I just like when I start to geek out about some of the stuff our guests come on the show with, I have a tendency to um to sound like I'm giving a paid pitch for the yeah, yeah yeah. What what about also talking about you know some of how we built it? You know, in particular. You know, we're using uh, like Graal VM to do our JavaScript execution. Would that be interesting to your to your listeners? Probably. But one thing I'd like to get into before then, if you don't mind, yeah, yeah, no, by way of an example. So one of the, I guess just to make this a little bit tangible. So I have a daily newsletter list over at uh, gomakethings.com where I send out JavaScript tips every day. Yeah. And I use MailChimp for that. But I also use MailChimp for a bunch of other things. And one of the things that stinks about MailChimp is if you have a sign-up form and then you have another sign-up form for that same list, but you want to add someone to some different groups, if they're already part of your list, MailChimp throws this error that says you need to like click this link to go update your profile, which is really not a great user experience. I want them to just enter their email address and get added to some new groups. So I ended up writing a custom integration with their API to handle that instead. So rather than using their out-of-the-box forms, I kind of have my own thing. Now, I don't see an app for MailChimp in Transposit, just kind of looking quickly. But so, like, is that something that I could use your service for just kind of using, like, Transposit's APIs, or does there need to be an app built for it? Or, like, how would that work? Yeah, good question. So I'm pretty sure we have an integration in MailChimp, and, and the re- part of the reason I'm pretty sure that's true, but I got to go double check, mm-hmm. is that we evaluated all kinds of mail senders from you know, MailChimp and SendGrid and and kind of all over the map, in part because we were building our own backend email infrastructure. One of the things my co-founder Tina had built at Twitter was all of their email and you know spam generation infrastructure. She has, she has a really refined eye when it comes to what we're looking for with regard to email. So yeah, for building those kinds, and, and what you're describing is very similar to what we've built internally using Transposit. Mm-hmm. You know, building these these highly customized integrations, you know, that with these kinds of APIs, where you're saying. Your front-end application works in some particular way. You've exposed an API that lets me customize it and give me the platform that lets me do that without having to deal with a bunch of this BS overhead, but then also gives me a, an easy place to host it and execute it and run it without needing to maintain infrastructure. Just yeah. to clarify for me, so in order for this to work, you guys need to have an integration with the, the API in Transposit. So it's not open-ended, like it... it it pulls from a, or it has to work with a predefined list of available APIs. Yes, that's right. So, in in order for for any of this stuff to work, you know, we need that open API or or, or swagger description of the API. We need Perfect. like metadata to know how to authenticate with this thing. You know, okay. uh, you know, OAuth is a standard sort of, but no two OAuth implementations look exactly the same. They all have a little bit of of deviation and differentiation. They're each their own kind of special snowflake. And that makes it a pain in the ass for everybody. But it means that once we've built that in Transposit, all of our users get the benefit and get to ignore all these subtle differences. So with MailChimp in particular, you know, they, they have their own kind of OAuth flow, uh, implement that, and then you get access to their APIs. Ooh, that sounds great. So if you don't have an app for it, though, I can use the... Um like they kind of handle some predefined behavior, I can still write my own kind of integration on top of that with Transposit serving as almost like that middleman API? 
Yeah, well, to be clear, like we we need that open API description to, yeah. to really get off the floor. So sure. if you find a, a case where you know there's some API that isn't yet supported, you can either uh, you know send an email to the support channel, or you can build it yourself based on documentation. And, and we've seen that in both cases. And so maybe I'm misunderstanding what apps do. I guess I'm thinking about apps as like they handle a very specific type of functionality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So app, you, whereas a funny term these days, like yeah. app is, you know, we use to mean everything from the stuff you get from Apple's iTunes store and, mm-hmm. and all this stuff. But so the way we categorize the world is data connectors, which is basically the description of these different APIs. Oh, okay. uh, and then an app is the thing, anything that is a consumer of those APIs. Okay. All right. Um, that's a pretty broad definition of app. So I'll give you another example. And I, I think this is something we've all kind of seen. You know, how many times have you used some kind of Jira workflow or or maybe something with Circle CI or you know one of your GitHub or review tools and thought, man, this this sucks. Like this is this is not how we work. We're getting we're getting forced to work the way that the tool vendor made. And I've definitely done this where I said, okay, there's an API. Just get in my way. I I can use this API and do whatever I want. And you know, quickly found like, okay, how do I deal with the OAuth? Where do I put this redirect URI? Uh, where do I host this thing? Where do I run it? And all of my enthusiasm for building this thing kind of just goes out the window. I'm like, actually, you know what? I'm fine doing this manual task. And, and one of the things that we saw internally as we were building prototypes is we were building a lot of these kinds of integrations. One of the things that we see built, people building a ton of both, you know, obviously within the company, but all, in our user base is these Slack integrations, which are, are really fun really easy to build and made all the more powerful when you get to connect all the data that you care about. So like a colleague of mine built this really neat Slack like chatbot using uh, Google's dialogue flow where he always gets confused in AWS CloudWatch about how to specify queries and you know whether it's UTC or local time zone and all that stuff. And so uh, he built a bot where he can chat with it and say, hey, can you find the log message associated with this error, either in our staging environment or our production environment? And then Dialogflow, which is its own kind of magic, parses that NLP and then hands back to Transposit the, the key nouns and verbs. And then it, you know, his app goes and fetches the appropriate data out of CloudWatch. So we see a lot of those kinds of you know, automating you know, quality of life applications being built. Unrelated to any of this, because you, you shared in the chat the the documentation for for Mailchimp, I really like that you guys are using the uh, the native details and summary elements for your expand and collapse functionality on your website. Oh, to cool! That's, native elements being used for good. their intended purpose. Yeah, good. That was done, you know, a day or two ago or whatever. So, also that might be up your alley. We're using Eleventy, so I want to give a uh, shout out to Eleventy. To oh, awesome! Yeah, Zach's static site generator. Sure. That's awesome. Sure. We're embarrassingly excited about it. Yeah, JS Jabber is hosted on 11T now too, so that's... Uh, um, yeah, my, my uh, 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. project is usually all 11T based. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's an awesome platform. I'd love to learn a little bit more about how this actually works under the hood. Like, this seems like a huge undertaking. I know we've talked a little bit about, you know, Swagger slash OAS or Open API specification, but what sort of other things do you need to make something like this work under the hood? Yeah, good question. And yeah, there are a ton of different pieces. So first, you know, part of the core of this thing is what we call the relational engine. It's this 
parser that you know takes the the SQL and translates it into this intermediate form and executes it efficiently. So that's one big chunk of that. Our backend is all in Java, and you know, don't hate us for it, but we we picked it kind of because it's boring, and we have this very pragmatic attitude internally. I uh, love PHP for the same reason. It's boring okay, cool. and it works. I, yeah, I exactly. You know, I, I think I made the mistake of telling my co-founder, you know, people like Java, but nobody loves Java. And it turns out she actually is in love with Java. Um, <laughs> but, the, you know, the great thing about Java is it's hard to be the, the first person to encounter any kind of problem. So that backend is all in Java. Um, you know, a big, big chunk of it is this relational engine. A big chunk of it is also this managed authentication, you know, storing tokens securely, um, enforcing security best practices, doing refreshes, all that kind of stuff. A lot of the stuff is also based on this technology called GraalVM. So Java VM that, that is also uh, multilingual or polyglot, pardon me. So that's where we get to run our, our JavaScript. We're running ES6 natively on, uh, on GraalVM. We had previously been using this technology called Nashorn, also from Oracle, but that kind of EOL'd and supported some very antique version of JavaScript. So th- those are some of the chunks in the back end. The front end is all TypeScript uh, and Reda- React and Redux. I mentioned that we like Java. We're big fans of typed languages, so so really liked some of the snugness of the tight jack of the straitjacket of uh, of TypeScript. That's certainly becoming more and more common with particularly with React apps, but in the JavaScript world in general, a lot of people are making that transition. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it, it makes a ton of sense. You know, I, so my background, I, when I started my career as a developer, I was a software engineer in the Solaris kernel development team. So when I started working on front-end technologies years later, and, and sometimes we would see errors in production on code that had never operated, you know, ne- never been run, never been compiled, you know, in our testing environment, it was terrifying to me. So I love this idea in, in TypeScript, at least that, that things have, been compiled and checked and, and verified. And, and so that even if there are gaps in your testing, you at least have the certainty that you're not going to encounter things that literally won't compile once they reach the production. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So I have a quick question about sort of one of the major benefits of Transposit uh, that you've mentioned a couple of times is that it makes authentication a lot easier for people. You don't have to deal with that as much. Uh, one of the examples you pointed out to us is there are something like 450,000 Slack applications, but the vast majority of them have one user, which is the person who wrote it because they don't know how to make it secure for other users to authenticate with. Can you sort of give us a brief example of how that works? Like, how would you fix that problem? Yeah, just to, to back up on, because some of these topics uh, are, are are similar to what we had discussed, but you know, what when Chris Effett said, hey, I've got this front end, I've got this application I built, thick stack, I've kind of stuck my secret key in there, maybe in kind of a, a squirrely way. 
we see a lot of those kinds of integrations built. So yes, Slack talks about 450,000 weekly active integrations, which is pretty nuts considering there are only 15,000 applications in their app store, in their directory. And so a lot of that is like, I can build an application for myself because I don't, you know, I can, I can put in that code the credentials that are relevant to me. Yeah, I have mine saved to an environment variable on the server. Yeah, um, exactly. For the same reason, I don't want to mess around with like, yeah, it's just hard coding them is the easiest way. <laughs> right, and how many times as developers do we say, cool, well, I, I, did, I did automate that process, you know, for me, and, and <laughs> problem solved. And, and I think we know like, well, it'd be really, you know, civic-minded of us to share this with our, with our teammates or maybe even the whole world. But then you're like, well, security is hard. And, and uh, you know, from speaking personally, it's one of these things that my brain is kind of immune to. Like I learn about, you know, when I was in school, I learned about stuff like Kerberos. I can never retain it. When I hear some of the specifics of like the confused deputy problem, it always sounds familiar, but I always get it wrong. So having someone else be like, explain that we, we, we've dealt with security properly is extremely valuable. And so we have a member of the team who's extremely fussy about this kind of stuff, who has made sure that we've got all our I's dotted and T's crossed on this. So if you're building some kind of Slack integration, let's say you want, you want Slack just to talk to your Google Calendar, or you want it to use your, your AWS credentials to go fetch some data out of CloudLock, watch like I mentioned earlier. So easy to build for yourself, but then when you want to walk other people through these OAuth flows, or you want to store their credentials securely, it can be a pain in the neck. So again, one of the typical kind of archetypes we see in Transposit with people building uh, these kinds of Slack integrations is the first time a user walks up to it, you might run a slash command and the slash command will say, hey, I've never seen you before. Click this link, brings you to a Transposit hosted web page where we've got all of the different authentications that you, got, that you need to provide. So you click through to authenticate with each of them and then that slash command can operate on your behalf. So it's, it's a really fast way to go from, hey, I've built something cool for myself, whether it's in, in Slack or some other kind of automation, and now I can share it with, with other folks on my team at a, bare, at a bare minimum. I actually have a question. One thing, I've, I've been looking around for pricing on the site and I don't see anything. So there's no way this is free, right? <laughs> Good. Well, uh, it is free. It's, free. it's free during our beta period. And it's free okay. you know, not just to use during our beta period, but any applications you make are grandfathered in. Okay, so we're in like startup mode right now. We're in startup mode. Yeah, the, okay. the company's only a few years old or a couple years old. It's early days for us. And our focus is just getting this in the hands of developers and getting them fired up and, and building community around it. Like we, we want people building cool stuff, sharing cool stuff. And, you know, I, I, I'm a developer. I love developers. Developers are cheapskates. Like trying to optimally monetize developers is not like a, a, a way to build a great business. So, Developers are, are the folks who make technologies successful, but, but not the folks who, who end up writing the checks at the end of the day. So, you know, early on, we thought about, you know, how to, how to price this thing, you know, on, on some consumption model or per user model, and ended up just throwing it away and saying, look, for this beta period, any app you built, grandfathered in, and we'll operate it forever for you for free. Nice. Cool. That's well, I gotta go sign up a whole bunch of apps right now so that I know. <laughs> Just make up a bunch of names. Hey, that's a smart move. Go, go, go build a bunch of applications, fill in the details later. You can always edit them later. Uh, yeah. No, I put people listening, please don't do that. Don't take it. <laughs> okay. No, that's um, that's cool. And that is true. It's um, it's always tough, right? Like GitHub, GitHub went through like kind of a similar, and I know this is shifting more into like a how to run a business kind of thing, but like 
GitHub's got kind of a, an interesting model too, where like it's free. And then if you want these other features that cost money, and I know a lot of even individual developers that shell out money for some of those features because they're awesome. Um, one of those individual developers who does. So. Right. And yep. it was, we actually borrowed a page from GitHub where we say, if you have public applications, those are free, make as many as you want. But if you want private, we give you one private application for free. We figured like let, let you kind of cut your teeth on something if you don't want to share the code and you find your, your first effort embarrassing, that can be private. But subsequent private applications, you pay 10 bucks a month to get an additional 100 private applications. So it's, it's, there, there is a, a paid model right now, but mm-hmm. only one in, in the case where you want to build something that, that's not available publicly that other developers can't see and, and can't use as examples. Mm-hmm. which is on, very very similar to, to how uh, GitHub is priced at various times. On kind of a, a similar note, I think I can see why I'm, I'm going to ask the question anyway. But there's, you guys chose not to go open source with this. It feels like, at least in part due to the security issues and everything, it made more sense to have this be a hosted application. But if, if you have you know more insight into that, I'd love to hear it. So it's, it's something we wrestled with a ton, especially early on, and, and continue to discuss. And just... You know, for for reference, I'm a huge fan of open source. Um, I, you know, at Sun, we we ended up open sourcing the the Solaris operating system. The thing I worked on, Dtrace, was the first part of it to be open sourced, which I was very proud of. So, I'm a big proponent of open source. As we were starting off, we actually started proceeding through the lens of of us expecting to open source it. You know, that being our our first foray. But then realizing that security is one part of it, but another part of it is is mechanism. So. In what I described, there's a lot of, of moving parts and machinery, in particular, stuff like client ID and secrets and tokens that we've got from all of these different these different vendors, and where we let the user to transposit operate with those client credentials. So, you know, part of our concern was with you know if we were to open source this thing, if that was the initial way that we we brought this to market is that it's actually kind of a lot of work to get moving. Not, it's not just download the open source project, you know, get clone that, build it, but then also go register with these different API vendors to grab the credentials and stuff them into this. So it seemed like a lot of work to get started. And we thought that the, the best way to demonstrate the value of a platform like this was going to be run as a service you know, in, in some kind of freemium model. And so that's why we pursued that. Now, we're definitely open to open sourcing it. You know, if once we start seeing that interest in building out a community uh, and you know, invest uh, other folks investing in some of these technologies and components, it's definitely something that that we expect to do in the future. But again, to to demonstrate the value of a platform like this, we thought we'd better operate it. As you say, there there are some security concerns, perhaps, but I think open source software is probably more secure than closed source software. It's more about that operational component. Makes sense. I have a um, question related to the security piece. Um, so one of the things I do with the, like the API, you know, so like the MailChimp thing again. So I have, the way I have that set up, I make a call to a middleman API I have running on a headless WordPress instance from JavaScript. And the middleman API grabs my key and secret from some environment variables on the server makes the real API call to MailChimp with some parameters that I've passed along as part of that JavaScript request, gets the information back from MailChimp, and then services just kind of the stuff I need 
back to the JavaScript thing. Now, I obviously don't want someone to be able to add my own MailChimp forms to like their sites and things like that. So I also have it restricted by by domain. So I have like a, a whitelist of domains. And if the request didn't come from one of those, it fails. Is that whitelisting thing something that you can do with Transposit? And that's a terrible name for it, but like an allow list. Yeah, um, yeah. So we don't have an yeah. allow list based on domains. We do have an allow list based on authentication. So okay. um, most of the applications that we build, or, or when folks build applications with Transposit, first, there's some notion of identity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like you have to say who you are and you can identify it through, you know, G Suite links, through Google single sign-on or through Slack. And then we're working on some other providers like GitHub and Twitter and other, other kinds of folks. So all of those APIs that you produce are behind that kind of authentication. So, so you don't have that concern of, of other, you know, other folks might be able to invoke those APIs if you've whitelisted those user credentials, but we don't have whitelisting based on, uh, you know, domains or IP addresses or things like that yet. So I guess the thing that's still fuzzy for me, Adam, is so if I'm trying to make calls like this from JavaScript, like at some point, authentication still needs to happen and those credentials still still need to live somewhere. Yeah. So Where so, is that somewhere? Like yeah. I'm just I'm thinking in the context of the MailChimp example, like... Yeah. It's a little unclear to me how I would actually secure that. Yeah, so a couple of different ways. So one, if you've got client code, we have an SDK that uh, you can embed within your client code and handle authentication with the user. So if you've got, or pardon me, not client code, you've got like browser code. So if you've got a user in front of a browser, that's where they do that authentication. If this MailChimp application is more headless, it's like something that you're running out of your home directory or whatever, then rather than you know, authenticating through OAuth, you can have just a, a client token or key or whatever. So, and that's how you authenticate with that API. Does that, does that make sense? I guess so. But like for something like this, the person submitting the form, like it's just, it's on a website, right? Like I have an open website. I want someone to sign up for my, my email list. I don't want the person doing that signing up to ever have to muck around with authentication. I just want them to be able to give me their email address and then some stuff's supposed to happen behind the scenes. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, I'm so, probably missing a step somewhere, or just doing a really bad job explaining. No, no, no. I, I, I think I get what you're saying. So you got you got a, you got a web page, you got a form. You want to have the data from that form plugged in, poked in some API, and yes. you don't want some other random folks to be able to invoke that API. So, yeah, like I don't want someone to be able to spam the heck out of it from like a bot somewhere. I mean, I guess they could if they ran it in the console while on my site, but like. You know, basically, I want to prevent someone from taking my sign-up form and the script that powers it and using it somewhere else on the web. Yeah. So right now, we don't. You know, if someone uses it from somewhere else on the web, we don't have a, a built-in kind of UI first and first-order feature to say mm-hmm. let's do that kind of whitelisting. But that's something that you could build in JavaScript on your own. So if you published like a a, 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 if you deployed an endpoint that's then invocable, you know, by a curl or you know over HTTP call or whatever, and then within your JavaScript you could say where is this coming from? And if it's coming from my domain, great, let's let's do it. And if it's coming from some other domain, let's stop that in those tracks. Did that answer your question, Chris? Yeah, yeah, that did. Okay, thank you. I have uh, just a brief question about creating a data connector. So for our listeners, in case they missed it, data connectors are how you connect to outside APIs. In the documentation, there's a bunch of existing connectors. MailChimp is actually one of them. There's a ton for AWS, CircleCI, a bunch of others. Uh, Then there's a 
page on creating a basic data connector. My question is just, assuming that the API uses OpenAPI, do you need any further access to that API? Like, could I create a data connector for somebody else's API that I, I don't have the source, I don't work on, it's just a, a public-facing API? Yep, you, you can create them, and, and we create them all the time. Some of the APIs that we create, you know, it comes from uh, Swagger files, OpenAPI files that, that those vendors produce, like, you know, Atlassian produces a bunch of OpenAPI files, they've really embraced it, so we just can take those. Gotcha. In a lot of other cases, folks don't, and we end up either building them by hand or scraping their documentation and generating open API files from them. So you don't need any first-party access to APIs to do it. Although if you are a, a first-party producer of APIs, I'd strongly ask that you, you know, dump out an open API document. You're, you'll help all your users. But you can, uh, you know, we've had lots of folks building lots of APIs for ones that they don't have tight control over. You know, all of these, you know, data connectors actually look a lot like these applications, both uh, that you build within Transposit, both are backed by Git repositories. So within the product itself, we host these different Git repositories. Part of the product is this IDE where you're, you're writing SQL, you're writing JavaScript, you're running it, iterating it, you know, in line. But if you don't like that stuff and if you want to go, uh, you know, write your own JavaScript in your own IDE or you want to go build it somewhere else, you can just git clone the repositories that you've built in Transposit, modify things locally, commit and push, uh, and push it into production. So for building data connectors, similarly, you just you know clone your repository, git add your Swagger file, your Open API file, uh, make some modifications into the manifest, and then push that, and that and that's how you deploy that into production. Very cool. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there. And it almost felt like it was on hype. And I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine. And it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. I think we probably should move to, to picks. Unless, Adam, if you have anything else uh, that you think we've missed or should cover. No, I think this has been real thorough, and I hope that uh, this was all of interest to you. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, I can't wait to um, to start digging into this a little bit. I I, I'm actually very interested in it myself for a couple of things that I'm working on. So uh, yeah, I think yeah, it's... As someone who works with kind of flat HTML files a lot now, this is um, this this solves a lot of... I just... I haven't been able to grok serverless the way a lot of people have. And yeah. anything that makes it easier for me to just write write some JavaScript that does the things I'm like really happy about. So serverless is such an interesting industry trend in that, you know, I think in some ways we've been doing serverless for, for a little while with things like Google App Engine or Heroku. And we just didn't talk mm -hmm. about it that way. But it's this it's this great bargain, right? Where you say, if you're willing to just write your application a little bit differently or conform to some some constraints, then the platform will do all this cool stuff. And, and one of the things that was motivating for us early on is we played with stuff like Lambda or Google Cloud Functions. 
And those are really cool until you start wanting to operate with data. Then you're like, well, where do I store my credentials? You know, how do I refresh? How do I get my, my redirect URI? All of that stuff becomes pain in the neck. So part of what we saw in Transposit is like, how can we take this cool thing in, in serverless and actually make it work for data or make it work for applications that, that matter a little bit more? Mm. I'm, I'm all in on serverless. I think it's very cool. Nice. Well, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for this. It's been a great chat. So Adam, are you aware of PIX? I know you listened to a few episodes. I just want to make sure you know. No, I'm not aware of PIX. Okay. So um, at the end of every episode, we, um, we each just kind of share a few like links or interesting things we've come across that people might be interested in. Sometimes they're software related. More often they are not. If AJ was here, he would probably talk about some like weird welding equipment or special imported glue from Japan that he's like really into right now. And um, music. He's, he's had a lot of music picks recently. You know, but yeah, like literally, I think Amy often talks about like, you know, like lifting shoes or like getting enough sleep. <laughs> you know, like, so there's, a, you know, it's like, it's just anything related to anything, just anything you think is interesting. Yeah. If you need a couple minutes, I'll, I'll start with Chris and then myself and then we'll, we'll swing around to you to close things out. Sounds good. All right. Awesome. So, uh, Mr. Beekler, would you like to, um, would you like to start us off with picks? Sure. It's sort of a single pick disguised as multiple picks or maybe reverse that. So I've been listening to a band uh, for a while now called Manchester Orchestra. They are a Atlanta based rock band, a little bit on the indie side. And I really like their work, but I came to it very late. Uh, I only came to it with their latest album called the black mile of the surface, which is awesome. And you should check it out. They are about to start touring for the 10-year anniversary of their album, Mean Everything to Nothing, which I had never listened to before I heard about the tour, but they're coming near me and I want to see them and I don't really want to go to a live show that's going to feature a ton of music that I don't actually know. So uh, I've been listening to that album for the past several weeks and really, really enjoying it as well. So basically two music picks, uh, both a Black Metal of the Surface and Mean Everything to Nothing, both by Manchester Orchestra, who I strongly recommend if you're into, I wouldn't quite call it hard rock, but there's definitely plenty of distortion in there for, for fans. So give that a shot. You can go to manchesterorchestra.com, get more information there. They've got Twitter, they've got a YouTube, they've got you know all the social media presence you could need. So that's my pick. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. I have two this week. The first one is, uh, I think I've maybe mentioned this on the show before, but I, I want to give a shout out to a, um, an open source library I created uh, sometime last year called Reef. That's a lightweight alternative to React and Vue for creating reactive state-based components and UI. Um, so it weighs in at just two and a half kilobytes, minified and gzipped, um, has no other dependencies, allows you to do simple templating with JavaScript strings or template literals, and uh, also encodes all of the data that you pass into your template to make sure that you're a little bit better protected from cross-site scripting attacks and things like that. Also does DOM diffing, only updates parts of the DOMs that have changed. Uh, and it's supported all the way back to IE9. Um, so certainly not nearly as full-featured as something like Vue might be, but I was amazed at what I was able to make work in just two and a half kilobytes of JavaScript and also really, really, really have a much healthier respect for the engineering that goes into things like React and Vue after having built that. Um, and if this sort of thing is interesting to you, over the last week or so, I've been writing a bunch of articles about how it all works under the hood because I learned a ton from building this thing out and kind of wanted to share that with folks. So I'll drop some links into the notes uh, so that you guys can 
check that all out. The second pick for me, and I know this is potentially a little not kosher for the show, but I'm going to do it anyways, because I feel really strongly about it. I wanted to pick Elizabeth Warren because I legitimately think she is the absolute best person to be our president here in the United States. She's one of the most exciting candidates I've seen in decades and just wanted to give her a little shout out. She's been an awesome senator here in my state of Massachusetts and, uh, and she has a plan for literally everything. So go check that out. With that in mind, Adam, do you have any picks for us today? Right on. So first of all, right, right on uh, Elizabeth Warren, very fired up for that. So I have, I have two kind of random things. So this is going to sound obvious, but everyone's seen, everyone knows Hamilton the musical is amazing. I, I finally made it through Hamilton the biography, which is about a million pages long. I've, been, I've spent my entire life reading it, it feels like. And man, you should not talk about reading it. You should go invest several months and go read it. It is amazing. It is amazing. And love that book and love Turner's book. And man, Hamilton is just such an unbelievable figure. So maybe you've seen the music or heard the music, but go read the book. It's incredible. Technology pick, the, the thing I've been geeking out about, we already talked about 11T, but is this uh, compiler generator called Antler 4, uh, A-N-T-L-R. It's available in lots of different languages. Uh, back in the day, I used to write a lot of Lex and Yak, and it was extremely painful. And if you're ever building a grammar or a parser, Antler kind of just lets you explain what you want, and it does the magic of figuring it out. So you don't have to be a programming languages nerd to make grammars work. So that's been very cool. That sounds awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot, Adam. So um, if anybody wants to learn more about you, about Transposit, where can they go? So uh, transposit.com is a good place to start. If you have questions, you can mail hello at transposit.com. And you can find me on Twitter at AHL. Oh, you got one of those coveted, super short, (laughs) awesome Twitter handles. Yeah, yeah. And I'm actually very lucky that the American Hockey League is on friendly terms with me. Because uh, (laughs) when the the postseason, when the Calder Cup is up for grabs, I get a lot of mistaken tweets my way. Awesome. Well, Adam, thank you so much for um, for being on the show. This was uh, this is really interesting. You know, listeners, go go take a look at Transposit. It seems like a really awesome kind of option for doing stuff that has historically been kind of difficult. Um, So, Adam, thanks for being here. This was awesome. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more.